So today I want to talk about uh, equanimity, and it's the fourth of the Brahma Viharas. And specifically, I want to talk about equanimity and its relation to compassion. Actually, maybe broaden it out. If we have time. So, as you know, there there are these four Brahma Viharas, four uh, divine or sublime abidings, dwellings of the heart. And uh, we've been working mostly on the loving kindness, the metta, the compassion, karuna. And Catherine, I think, uh, Monday or Monday talked about joy, which is the third one. And uh, just a word about that. So usually that third Brahmahara gets translated, uh, the Pali word is mudita, M-U-D-I-T-A. Usually it gets translated as sympathetic joy, uh, which has the meaning of uh, if someone is happy, if some a good circumstance before someone, so something happens in their life to make them happy, then instead of being jealous or indifferent, we are happy for their happiness. We're happy for them to be happy. And that's one, uh, that's the usual way that that uh, mudita is translated. Sympathetic joy. Um, I think that translation actually came from the commentaries and uh, that in the Buddha's original uh, discourses that he, I'm not sure that he used it that way and that the meaning I prefer is more something like spiritual joy which isn't a great word I know but what it really uh, to me means is a joy, a happiness in life that's not dependent on the ego uh, getting something or being pumped up by something, or inflated, or feeling uh, superior, or whatever. So a joy in life that is not about the ego getting. Uh, and then, of course, as a sort of small piece of that, there will be sympathetic joy. When someone else is happy, uh, I will be happy as well, as, as, a, as a piece of spiritual joy. But it would also include things like uh, wonder at nature, like that kind of receptivity that I was talking about, like uh, an openness to be touched by life, and touched by the, the beauty, the awe, the wonder of life, in a way that has, I can't own, I can't possess it, it has nothing to do with me, it has nothing to do with me being great or, or, uh, or giving me anything particularly. There's some kind of joy that's not so based on the ego. And that's the third one. And then the fourth one is this word equanimity, and the Pali word is upeka. U-P-E, I think, K-K-H-A. <laughs> and uh, this is a strange word. It's not a word we use much in English. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and again, if you wander down you know, about High Street <laughs> and you ask people, you know, how often do you feel equanimous or whatever, I mean, you probably get some puzzle. It's not a very common word. And, and sometimes it can be hard to understand what it actually means. Uh, it's a kind of steadiness, a steadiness of the heart and the mind. And again, uh, there are 
two, uh, two kinds of meanings. One is in relation to all things. So it's the mind, the heart, the being uh, stays steady, stays balanced, uh, stays kind of unshakable uh, through uh, its contact with all things in life. So in relation to whatever comes, however difficult, however wonderful, heart, the mind, stays steady, stays upright, stays balanced. And that's the broader meaning of equanimity in the way that the Buddha more often used it. And again, I think through the commentaries it has come to have a kind of second meaning in relationship to beings. So specifically as a kind of balancing factor in terms of compassion. So that here we are cultivating compassion and opening the heart uh, sensitizing the heart to the suffering in the world, the suffering of others and our own. And uh, sometimes acting in the world to try and alleviate the suffering, to be of service, to be of help. And yet, uh, what we often find is that the suffering of others uh, is not alleviated. It's, it's not helped. They're still suffering for whatever reasons. Can, or there's just uh, too much suffering in the world. It's actually endless. It's impossible for me to end all the suffering in the world. Can the heart stay steady with that? Can the compassion stay steady? So that we're not keeled over, bowled over, closing down, uh, feeling depressed by that. So in relationship to beings, this is what equanimity means. It's a hugely important factor in, in, in compassion. So I want to just go into a little bit how that factor of equanimity um, uh, feeds into the compassion practice, how we can develop it within the compassion practice and then, and then broaden it out. Some, some of it is, uh, we've already touched on, but I just want to draw it out uh, once more. So the first, uh, the first aspect is, uh, which I've said a couple of times at least, in the compassion practice, it has two elements, at least two elements. One is this, what I would call empathy. We are opening the heart to uh, receive, to resonate with, to sympathize with the suffering that we see. So, I see sorrow, and something in the heart trembles with that sorrow, it resonates with that sorrow. Somehow, I don't know, mystically almost, uh, sorrow that isn't ours, we witness it and something happens in our heart. We, our heart vibrates sympathetically with that. That's only half of compassion. The other half is this uh, energy, this intention that comes out of the being, so to speak, that goes out of the being, that wants to heal, wants to alleviate and soothe that suffering, wants to comfort it. In the practice, we can actually feel where the balance is in any one moment. So sometimes it will feel like we're uh, very much in in the feeling the sorrow side. We're very much there's there's quite some uh, sadness or grief or just being moved. And sometimes it can be very lovely, and there's a sweetness to it. There's a, there's a beauty to it. The heart is open and touched. And sometimes it feels like the balance is more, we're just feeling in, tuning in to that energy that's going out. The lovely quality of 
of healing, of light, the, the balm, the comforting. And this is a balance that's always moving, it's always moving. To, to part of the practice, to be aware of, in any one moment, where the balance is. <coughs> that, if we're tuning into that kind of healing quality, what's going out, the comforting, the balm, it actually has a feeling of feeling pleasant, and of feeling quite healing. So in coming out of our being, it's actually touching, uh, touching us on its way out to others. And we feel healed. And there's a kind of pleasantness in it, there's a kind of brightness in it, there's a kind of healing in it, and there's even a kind of sense of well-being, of happiness in it. So sometimes there are, there are times, and periods even, when there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of grief almost in the compassion practice, we, where uh, something in the heart is opening and we it's almost like a veil, we're removing a veil and the heart just comes in a very raw contact uh, with the suffering of the world. We see, like a veil uh, has been removed from the eyes, from the heart, and we, we're, um, we're touching directly the suffering of the world. We see the immensity of it. We see the universality of it, the fact of death, the fact of change, the fact of disease, the fact of uh, all of it. And the heart can, in that, that there is a grief, uh, and there can be tears and, and sorrow, and a real uh, being touched at a very deep level. Which, in a way, is important. Uh, for some people, that will be there at times, and it's part of the heart opening. And it's not everyone that goes through something like that, but uh, can be there at times, very subtly or more strongly. And in a way, it's part of our humanity to be touched. Uh, we're not, um, in a way, wanting to be untouched and inhuman. It gives the heart a quality of some kind of opening, some kind of tenderness. That's really important. But we need to really uh, be conscious of this balance in our practice of compassion. So I would say that in order that compassion in our life is something sustainable. In other words, we, we really feel like we can practice compassion all day, every day for the rest of our lives and not, not feel tired, not feel overwhelmed, not feel burdened by the suffering in the world. We need to keep tuning in to that loveliness of what's going out, the nourishing quality of what's going out, the happiness of it, and keep being touched by that and, and ourselves nourished by that. That gives the compassion uh, in that moment and in our lives, uh, in the being, a kind of strength and sustainability. That's very much part of what equanimity means. Strength, sustainability. Also gives a steadiness, gives a balance. And this unshakability, which is all part of what equanimity means. And gives, gives the heart a kind of buoyancy, so that we don't feel, as I said, burdened, overwhelmed, you know, sinking underneath the weight of the suffering of the world. So this is hugely important. So there's that, that balance. The other, uh, or one other piece that's really important with equanimity is samadhi, now going back to, you know, the beginning of the retreat. Samadhi, in one sense, is a kind of non-distractedness, you could say. 
When the mind is distracted, what's really happening is it's, it's toppling over, pulled out to reach things. It's pulled out towards this or pulled out towards that. And that very distractedness is a non-balance, a non-steadiness non, um, non of mind. So really not to, not to underestimate the, the benefits and the power of samadhi in the deepening of equanimity. So samadhi in the, in the metta and the compassion practice, but samadhi generally. I remember last year, after, I think it was after about two weeks, and there was one retreatant who, very thoughtfully, uh, very thoughtfully I thought, he said uh, to me in an interview, I think I want to, I think I don't want so much samadhi. It, I feel like when I go out into the world and deal with compassion in the world, the fact is, I'm moving in life, I'm moving, there's busyness, there's distraction, there's all of that. There's basically not a lot of samadhi compared to, he was getting in quite relative deep states here. It will be more relevant, he said, to practice here the rest of the time uh, in states of non-samadhi. You know, actually, when I'm quite distracted. I didn't ask him how he's planning to distract himself. But <laughs> 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 but anyway. Um, and so this uh, this was quite thoughtful, but not to, um, as I say, not to underestimate. There's something that happens with samadhi. It sort of allows any quality, whether it's insight, whether it's metta, whether it's compassion, whatever it is, to kind of sink into the cells and to be there, uh, woven in almost to the fabric of our being. So what's more common is uh, to to not have so much samadhi, think we've understood something, think uh, we've developed a lot of compassion, and find that when we go out it's, it's a bit shaky. So again, not to say there's a cut-off point, but just generally uh, that we want to be uh, not underestimating the power of the samadhi. Having said that, what he said was also important because uh, Sometimes we are very busy, very distracting. It's important. It's important to practice to when we're busy, and when the mind isn't that settled. So both are important. Both are important. But generally, as samadhi deepens, uh, as a, as a general quality in the being, it actually leads to equanimity. It's part of the natural progression of samadhi uh, through uh, through. Physical PT, what I talked about through happiness, through peace, and actually descend uh, to, to depths of equanimity. And then, in the course of that, and this is usually a progression that takes months and months, but in, in the progression of that, the equanimity too gets kind of sewn into the being. And it's really something that's accessible in life, not just in the samadhi. So there's this balance in the practice I was talking about. There's the samadhi. There's also this factor about how much the um, how much the self is doing the compassion practice. So sometimes, especially when uh, you know, from the beginning weeks, really, if you if you're on retreat, it can very much feel like, well, I'm sort of pumping away at the phrases, sort of, <laughs> you know, and and the, then sometimes there's a feeling of compassion and then sometimes not, but it feels like the self is doing it, and the self is sort of trying to get this compassion to happen, and then feeling the compassion if it's there. I think some, some of you, 
uh, I think I've noticed this, and again, not not to make any, any kind of measurement out of this, but sometimes as the sense of deepening happens in the practice, it can actually feel like it's not the self doing it. It's not me making compassion. It's not me kind of pumping everything up with the phrases and sort of you know, making sure it's okay. It's more like uh, compassion is just something there that we can tune into and the self a little bit gets out of the way. It's not the self doing it. This is quite an important um, area or shift that, that can happen in, in practice if it happens. Self and equanimity have a very, in a way, clear and interesting relationship. Basically, the, the more the self-sense, the bigger the self-sense, uh, the stronger the self-sense, the less the equanimity. It's actually that simple. There's either one or the other. That uh, as the self-sense gets quiet, as the ego gets quiet, equanimity is the natural, uh, the natural state. There's less uh, self in there invested, worrying about, will this work out, will it won't work out, how's it all going? And equanimity is a, uh, a natural settling of when there's, uh, when there's less self being built up. Sometimes too, and some of you reported uh, this as well, when there's less self doing it, there can sometimes feel like a spaciousness comes into the compassion practice. And uh, again, it's not the self doing it, but it's almost like there is a space, like there is space in the universe, and that space is imbued, is kind of shot through with compassion. And that space, uh, that space of compassion holds any suffering that comes up in ourselves, in others. Uh, in an effortless, effortless way, uh, through all time. So any suffering that was, any suffering that is now, any suffering that will be, is just held effortlessly, naturally, organically in that space. And this is a sense uh, that can open up. It's not me, me, little old me, holding someone else's suffering. It's actually whatever you want to say, the universe holding it, the space holding it, the vast heart holding it. Spaciousness, space, is also a really significant factor of equanimity. So we could talk about equanimity as being steadiness and uh, balance, but it's also kind of spaciousness. That's a very uh, prominent feature of, of equanimity. Now, both of these, uh, whether it's the self doing it and it just feels like this being over here giving compassion to that being over there, or it feels like there's not really much self doing it, it's just compassion being, it's just suffering being held uh, in the space. It's just being held by a space of compassion. Both are important and both are necessary. So it's not to feel like, oh, one's, one's uh, irrelevant after a while. This self giving compassion to that self is very human and it's part of our humanity and it is a, a necessary, uh, necessary f aspect of our, of our humanity, a necessary uh, level in a way of compassion. So there's the balance, the samadhi, the 
busyness or not of the self and the openness to space and spaciousness. There's also something a little bit more complicated or more potentially more messy, which is sometimes when we are involved in a relationship, uh, any kind of relationship with someone or or involved in helping or or compassion, um, something gets out of balance and what's really happening is uh, I am wanting or needing something from that person or from the situation. And sometimes it's clear and sometimes it's a little more under the surface. So sometimes to ask oneself, what do I want or need uh, for myself here? And this, is, this can be quite uh, complicated and, and messy and not, and not uh, clear and it's not uh, to say that we shouldn't have wants or needs either. So if, if we're talking about compassion to a friend or relationship, um, sometimes we feel when the other is suffering, when there's a lot of suffering in the other, we feel, uh, and especially if it goes on for a long period of time, feel that uh, my needs in the relationship are not being met. Uh, my needs in this relationship are not being met. Or we are involved in a relationship or a situation of, of care for someone who is clearly causing suffering for themselves in an ongoing way. There are maybe there's some addiction or some destructive behavior or whatever it is. And again, it can feel like um, my, my needs in this relationship are not being met. So this is, this is quite a common scenario, and I know, you know my past has certainly been involved in these kind of situations. And someone once said to me, it's a very, uh, I mean, it's a strange language they use, but it's a very high level of care to be in that situation in a healthy way and caring for someone who's doing that without uh, having it be unhealthy on both sides. Am I taking care of my needs if that is the situation? So maybe I do have genuine needs. And again, this goes back to talk a while ago. We can talk about loving-kindness and compassion. It can sound all very abstract and sort of completely clean and pure, but the reality of our life is that we are involved in relationships and we all have needs and wants within that. So am I taking care of my needs? Am I finding a way to do that? So it may be that we're in a situation where we actually end up feeling quite lonely, or we feel like we need a friend, or that, as I said, we're not being met, or we're not uh, feeling loved. This is quite common. Sometimes it's a little bit even more complicated. We may be involved in a situation where um, we are actually invested somehow in being needed. So we're interested in, com in compassion, but another sort of strata in there is that we a part of us actually wants to keep the person somewhat down so that we are needed. Uh, and this can, again, this can come in in, in very insidious ways. Not to, again, not to be scared of all this, because this is part of humanity. This is part of being human. I think some some psychotherapists call that kind of codependence. That kind of it's a whole system in place of you you be messed up so that I can feel needed, and it's just something that human beings do uh, sometimes. Or we may be involved in service, in helping people, in trying to help people. And 
we're actually wanting a sense of achievement. We want this person to get better, so it can feel like, yeah, right, something happened. You know, I did something. I, I was helpful, and this is com completely, you know, understandable, completely normal. And uh, uh, or we may be involved and again, uh, totally normal, uh, totally human. We want some recognition for our effort. You know, we work really hard to to help to w w in whatever field it is and then uh, just feel like well it's not really being seen or being seen uh, in the way that we want it to be seen so all of that and it's quite it's quite you know complex and messy and uh, very human can I take care of myself in a healthy way uh, can I get at least some of what I need in a healthy way so some of this is not easy but to begin asking that question in in, uh, in in the situations. When we're involved in compassion and love toward you know, a situation where it's difficult, uh, where it feels like the person is difficult, or there's aversion, there's judgment, there's uh, um, irritability with them, um, or we're just frustrated, we're frustrated at the situation, at the stuckness of the situation, we're frustrated with this person, whatever, uh, really, really skillful to, to turn the compassion on oneself. So again, we, we tend to assume to go uh, straight into, oh, I just need to inject more compassion towards them and clean it up that way. We're suffering there. And to really notice that and touch that with compassion. And then sometimes our, um, our relationship to the situation, the person, and the flow of compassion in that situation begins to soften. The perception begins to soften we're able to work more easily. So, you know, it's an immense task, I think, to to take these Brahma-Viharas on in our life, and it's really a lifelong thing, to say, I'm really deeply interested, deeply committed to living a life, living in the world, with love and compassion and joy and somehow be steady through all of it. And that's, that's immense. And we do see that uh, part of where the wisdom comes in is just realizing, and a lot of it's very clear, is that there are limits to how much we can help. There are limits to our influence. So certainly we see this politically. You know, any kind of, um, well, in all political situation, or political, um, structures, systems that I can think of, there's, there's a real limit to the individual's uh, kind of, one individual's capacity to, to change. So certainly something like, uh, we can see something like, um, well, all kinds of things that are going on now. Just the limits of our influence politically. A big part of bringing equanimity in is actually seeing uh, Seeing the web of conditions, seeing that uh, someone's freedom from suffering doesn't just depend on me. Just I can be doing all I can to help them. I may be the closest person to them, but it just doesn't just depend on me. And so to begin to shift the seeing, this takes quite some time, to begin to see all the, all the factors, all the conditions, the web of conditions that comes in to make any situation what it is. 
So, uh, for instance, a Dharma talk uh, is quite an interesting example. Uh, it can seem as if I'm sitting here giving a Dharma talk and, and, <laughs> and you're listening. <laughs> Uh, my experience uh, is is that's you know on one level of course that's what's happening on another level uh, we're all giving this dharma talk it's it's a complete codependent arising what's coming out of my mouth the feeling in the room the words I choose the tone of voice all of it is as much dependent on you and how you're feeling and what you're mirroring back to me and this kind of interplay that's inextricable as it is to what we all had for lunch in the day and how tired I am and, and, and everything is coming together <laughs> and I'm quite tired <laughs> uh, everything's coming together to make a Dharma talk and it's not, we tend to see it in terms of selves and selves being responsible for things it's a complete coming together then I say as a teacher, you know, you, you want to put something out there and you want to say, well, I hope this changes people, I hope, hope, hope there's some transformation, I hope it makes a difference in people's life. You know, and that's a very, it's a very uh, earnest uh, uh, aspiration, desire. But, you know, as a teacher, I have to remind myself, this is probably just one little drop or one little seed which will meet a whole web of other conditions later on. So maybe something happens... Uh, Maybe, you know, as I'm talking, someone says, I've got it. <laughs> That's it. Actually, I don't need to stay for the restaurant last week. <laughs> I'll be having tea if you want me to. Um, maybe that, you know, that would be great. Um, but mostly, it's actually, it's just a little drop, and then people, you know, one goes out into that infinite web of conditions in the life. Maybe it's just a seed. It meets another condition, then it begins to sprout. Maybe it sprouts a little here and then it gets watered. Maybe it meets the wrong conditions and it, it just gets covered over, you know. So we have to see that the, the, what we put into a situation in terms of compassion and care is only one little ingredient in, in a vast web of conditions. So even it seems that we are, we're doing all we can to help someone, just to realize that certainly if they're going to live longer, they will meet other conditions. And maybe, maybe something you've done or said, it will just be enough that it can blossom later for that person. But it's tricky. I mean, it's, re it's really tricky. This is a hard one. I mean, all, all these Brahmaharas are difficult, but Sanyakwanusi <laughs> is difficult. And uh, equanimity, the, just to be really clear, is, is not a kind of... Um, detachment, coldness, uh, greyness, disconnection. It's not indifference. Indifference is actually what the near enemy of equanimity. So it can look like equanimity. It could be like, I'm fine. Uh, if you if you get healed, fine. If you suffer, that's fine. You know. But actually, um, <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no real care there. So indifference is what can look like equanimity, but it's not. And this is, this is quite interesting, especially in spiritual circles, when a lot of, uh, a lot of um, stock gets put into non-attachment and peace and kind of, you know, being beyond things, etc. And so, in the Eastern religions, you know, there's this doctrine of karma and past lives and, and everything. And uh, sometimes people say, well, they're like that because of the, you know, their previous suffering, in a way it's their fault, you know. 
or in the West is, is oh, it's just God's will. Um, I, I don't, I just, I, I can't really relate to that at all. I just, uh, to me, it's really not a useful uh, way of thinking. Uh, especially, uh, or rather, it's not, rather, one has to check if it's useful in the sense that is it, is an attitude like that bringing indifference? So once I was meeting with someone who was not on retreat and she was talking about reincarnation, past lives, and she said, is it right, is it wrong? And I said, oh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I asked her, is it actually opening your heart or not? Are you feeling more care coming from it? Are you feeling more commitment to kindness, to compassion? And she said, yes. So I said, great. You know, that's, if, if that's what's helping, then, then go for it. And the view might change later on. But the, the barometer is really, what's it doing to the heart? So what is my responsibility, responsibility, my ability to respond? It's not karma or God's will as a sort of, you know, leading to indifference. And this is, uh, this is really important. So sometimes all those pieces of self-interest and, and that I was talking about and the, the way that self can kind of get entangled in a whole situation of care, uh, sometimes that's relatively not there, you know, and it's relative, the self is it's not so invested in, in an unhealthy way or, or in any way like that. And still, we, uh, vibe, we resonate with the suffering, and the question for equanimity is, can the compassion stay steady and stay strong, but stay tender, that that tenderness of the heart uh, remains? And sometimes it's very clear that we're seeing someone perpet cause and perpetuate suffering from themselves through ignorance. They're caught in some pattern that they're not understanding, some addiction, some behavior, whatever it is, and they're just perpetuating suffering, causing suffering and keeping it going through ignorance. And that's hard to see. It's hard to be with, especially if we... If we um, uh, but when the compassion is there, it's hard to see. When there's love there, it's hard to see. So traditionally, uh, there are these phrases for compassion, for equanimity, excuse me. And it's, it's trying to um, make clearer to the heart that is already open, already soft and tender with, with compassion. It's trying to make it clearer the limits of our responsibility and the responsibility of another and how suffering actually arises because of um, conditions and, and often a person's actions. So, just to say, of course, there's suffering in the world uh, that, uh, you know, comes that nothing to do with the person, it's just descended on from the environment or political situation, whatever. And then there's other levels of suffering, other kinds of suffering, that are really what humans bring on themselves through ignorance. And this is what the Buddha's uh, really interested in as well. So these phrases, uh, I'll actually just read them. All beings are the owners of their actions. Their happiness and their unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. All beings are the owners of their actions and inherit the results of their actions. 
Their future is born from such actions, companion to such actions, and the results of their actions will be their home. Third one, all actions with intention, be they skillful or harmful, of such acts they will be the heirs. So to me, even just reading it, it's quite, it's quite sobering, you know, to a heart that, that when there's the compassion, it's quite sobering, actually realizing the limits. And, and so the equanimity practice in this sort of very formal way uh, is, is just bringing that recollection to mind, bringing it to that recollection to mind to balance the compassion if it's not already balanced. <laughs> and so... We do live in a world uh, where we, as I said, there are limits to our care, there are limits to the effects of our actions that we can see, certainly, uh, and limits to uh, limits to what we can do. And so we, we see, and if we are involved in service, you, you are involved in situations where uh, one's trying everything one can, one puts everything that one can in, and there's still suffering, there's still the situation. But, and I think John said this in, I think it was John said it in even the opening talk, loving kindness and compassion, best way to live, the best way to live. So even if the action, even if the results are not what we want them to do, the heart of loving kindness and compassion is the, is the best way to be in the world. <coughs> Excuse me. And that heart balanced balance with a sense of freedom balance with a sense of equanimity <clears throat> so this balance is not a tightrope it's not a kind of razor's edge that we're walking that's quite important it's not it's more to me it's more a sense of a softening a spaciousness so it's not it's not something very tense to keep on this balance of freedom and compassion uh, there's a kind of softening that can happen as the wisdom deepens, as the equanimity deepens, also as the compassion deepens, and a spaciousness that comes with that. So the more we see into the emptiness of self and the emptiness of all things, uh, the more that kind of spaciousness and that kind of softness can come in, and we are able to walk this tightrope, which really isn't a tightrope, we're able to walk that in a much more relaxed and kind of effortless way. Uh, I'm still saying it's very difficult, but but the movement is towards a kind of softening. So to me, um, as we go deeper into into understanding, into really understanding what emptiness is, and and having that touch the heart. I think I said this the other day. What comes out of that is a sense of freedom and joy and peace and wonder. Another sense that comes out is some kind of sense of devotion, I would call it. I don't really know another word for it. Devotion. And that can take all kinds of forms. A heart that has opened uh, or is opening to emptiness. There's, there's a kind of devotion to, uh, to the world at one level that just comes in. So paradoxically, we see the emptiness of self, the emptiness of being, the emptiness of the world, and where even more devoted to it, somehow, even more devoted. And that devotion has a quality of not being so attached to the result. There's a real softness in it, there's a softening in it. <coughs> <coughs> 
So seeing into emptiness is not a kind of nihilism. I, I think I said this the other day as well. It's not, you know, we talk, it's, it's, a, it's a strange translation, but emptiness, it can kind of make you feel like, well, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no people, there's nothing, nothing, nothing matters. Um, but to go into what's called the extreme view of nihilism would give rise to uh, indifference, which would be the near enemy of compassion. It's a kind of disconnection, disconnect, not caring, disinterested, aloof. Uh, so as we talked about in the compassion and the metta practice, the more we actually contemplate this anatta in the different ways, the more we actually find it, it's opening up love. It's opening up a sense of connection. It should be. It should be uh, if we're if we're sort of on the right track with it. And we talked about doing that with contemplating, you know, just mind moments, not really onerous mind moments, not really anyone owning these mind moments of suffering, and the different ways. And we talked about anatta, and also talked about this sense of emptiness being fullness, being non-separation. So that I cannot actually find uh, a separate being. I can't, it, seems, it seems the most obvious thing in the world. Here we are, a room full of whatever it is, numbers of beings. Uh, but as I look deeper and I go into it, I cannot actually find separate beings. I cannot find myself separate, I cannot find others separate. And in that, uh, the love is there. So there's that emptiness of, of selves, uh, myself and other selves, and that brings the compassion, it brings that equanimity. Uh, and, and on a whole other level, there's even the emptiness of suffering. That what seems, okay, you could say, okay, well there's no beings, really. But even suffering too, as you go really deep into that's also empty. And yet paradoxically, seeing that brings compassion in a way that there's equanimity for it. So at, at the beginning of the talk I said that the, the most usual way the Buddha talked about equanimity was not so much in relation to beings, but in relation to all conditions, all things. So the mind, the heart, the being, staying steady, staying balanced, unshakable, whatever happens, whatever is going on, whatever is coming to the senses. So sometimes to ask ourselves, how much does my mind state depend on what's going on? Uh, we get this happens or that happens, and how much does the mind state wobble with that? Steadiness with it is what equanimity is. All conditions, absolutely all conditions. There are particularly eight, uh, what's called eight worldly conditions that the Buddha, that the Buddha placed a lot of emphasis on. So all conditions he's talking about, but there's eight in particular that he said uh, the, these ones um, pay particular attention to. And they're, they, they're four pairs, four, four, four pairs. Praise and blame, success and failure, gain and loss, and pleasure and pain. So four pairs, four pairs, one pole of each pair we like. We like praise, success, gain, and pleasure. And the other pole we, we don't like. We don't want it. No one wants to be blamed or to be in pain or, or to fail or to 
to lose what we like. And whoever we are in this life, whatever our history, uh, whoever we are, whatever our credentials, we are going to be subject throughout our life to the wavering of those, those four polarities. No matter who you are. The Buddha, certainly. Jesus, certainly. Gandhi, certainly. Mother Teresa. Uh, David Beckham, <laughs> whoever, <laughs> whoever, <laughs> um, <laughs> they're inescapable facts of life, the eight worldly conditions. To be in the world means to be subject to the movement along those four polarities. How steady can the heart be with that? So often when equanimity is talked about, um, and, and, and the question is, well, how can I develop equanimity? Uh, the contemplation of impermanence is usually given as the, the sort of, that's where it's at. And certainly there's a great power in contemplating impermanence. But I was talking with, uh, a few weeks ago, with another teacher, and uh, she was saying, whenever she starts giving a talk on impermanence, she, she notices people just sort of, Impermanence, right? And then they just this kind of screen goes, oh God. <laughs> I've heard it before, which is understandable because Buddhists just, you know, yap on about it. Uh, I would say it's, it is curious. You know, impermanence is extremely obvious. A five year old can agree that everything's impermanent. Some, some pretty low age can agree that everything's pretty impermanent. It's, it's very clear to us. The question from the Dharma perspective is are we seeing, are we contemplating impermanence? in a way that's actually bringing a sense of freedom, bringing a sense of equanimity. And to f if we're choosing impermanence as an avenue of contemplation, finding a way of doing it that brings that. Because sometimes people are contemplating impermanence and, yeah, it's change, change, change. There's, not, there's no freedom coming out of it. So to, to find ways, and you know, to talk with teachers and friends and whatever, and to find ways of working with impermanence, actually bringing in the moment, a sense of freedom. In the moment, one feels, as one's contemplating it, ah, oh, oh yeah, release, release. So I think I touched on impermanence in one of the other talks, so I'm actually not going not gonna to go into that right now. Um, I touched earlier in this talk on samadhi, and, and the progress of samadhi, the natural progress of samadhi as it gets deeper and deeper, and I'm talking about really quite deep states of samadhi now, naturally move into equanimity, naturally and organically. Equanimity is, is um, uh, a state of deep samadhi. How does it deepen? How does equanimity deepen? actually deepens by letting go of grasping and craving. So the more in the moment we let go of grasping, of craving after something or, or trying to get rid of something, the more the being moves into equanimity. It's actually that simple. And we can do this at subtler and subtler levels, and the equanimity just gets deeper and deeper. So we notice some very obvious grasping or aversion or craving, and we just relax that, let go of that. And the being, there's some degree of calmness. And then we pick up on a more subtle level, and we let go of that, and there's a bit more calmness. And it just goes deeper and deeper. And that's how equanimity deepens. One kind of subtle form of grasping is, is grasping at the I, at the me, at the self. So identifying with things. Another way that equanimity deepens is by just letting go of identification, letting go of identification, letting go of identification, and equanimity 
kind of descends on the being, or, or the being descends into equanimity, whatever you want to put it. As a state, uh, we're almost near the end of the retreat now, but uh, as, a, as a state, uh, when there's a sense of the equanimity deepening, the other factor uh, that, that de- helps it deepen is actually the mind tuning in to how it feels. So it has a certain uh, feeling tone, equanimity to it, a certain peacefulness, a certain stillness. And it's, ch- it's the mind kind of tuning in to that wavelength, that resonance, and just being there with it, noticing it, feeling it, opening to it, and enjoying it. Enjoying it. That allows it to, to deepen, to settle in the being. And it's interesting, for a lot of people, it's really an acquired taste. Uh, deep calmness, deep stillness, deep equanimity is really an acquired taste because generally our sense of uh, oomph in life and va-va-boom and, and you know, uh, things we get excited about are generally not in places of equanimity. They're in places of the self getting really excited about something, either something really that we take as good or something that we take as dreadful. So some big drama we're caught in and the, to steady and let the self kind of get quiet and just stillness and just stillness and just equanimity that can be for many many people it's a quiet taste so and just to mention briefly also the place of mudita of joy in the deepening of equanimity I don't have time to go into this today but joy you know whatever word you want well-being joy deep nourishment, happiness, whatever being, whatever word, they that forms a basis for, for the being uh, being able to, to really open to equanimity. So in one's life, certainly in the samadhi it's also a basis, but in one's life, when there's more a sense of joy in one's life, uh, there we are less dependent on the external circumstances being this way or that way. We just, it makes less of an impact because we feel like we have enough. And this is a very gradual journey for most people and a very non-linear journey. But looking into how is it that my well of joy, my reservoir of inner happiness can be deepened in life. And so looking into how, do, how does the being open to wonder? How does it open to the mystery of life, to the awe of things? How, you know, what's the place of art and music in that? What's the place of, of uh, our relationship with nature? All of that. Uh, certainly the metta and the compassion practice build those reservoirs over time, build the inner reservoirs of happiness. Sometimes we lose our balance, we lose our equanimity in relationship to a situation, either inner or outer, because we are caught up in future thinking and what will the future be? Will this situation get better? Will this person get better? Will this uh, inner situation get better? Uh, This emotion, will it ever go away? Uh, What's happening with my body, will it ever go away? We are caught up in future thinking. And so, for instance, something like climate change, uh, how much of the, um, how much of what's going on with that and the way that we as a species are, are 
if we are addressing it, um, <laughs> how much of that is actually caught up in, in the future thinking. The scenarios on the front page of the newspaper, what will it be like in 2056? You know, it's, it's a lot of future thinking, which is fine. There's a real skill in future thinking. So again, in, in Dharma practice as well, what will my life be like if I don't take care of the kind of uh, intentions I have in life, of the kind of actions, of the kind of speech, of, of cultivating what is beautiful. How will I be in 20, 30 years if I'm still alive? What will have happened to the heart? And you can see this in other people uh, over decades. You know, I'm, I shouldn't say this, but uh, one, one just sees in, in, in other people what they've been cultivating or not certain qualities, and as they, as they get older, one sees the being. And so sometimes future thinking is actually really skillful uh, to see uh, where does this lead? Where is how I'm living, what I'm choosing, where is it leading me in my heart? Mm. But sometimes future, future thinking is actually not that skillful, and it can be quite skillful to drop it, to just drop future thinking. Not compound a situation, build up a sense of problem by kind of tacking on the future to it. Uh, so here's this difficult situation internally or externally. I'm just kind of imagining it going on forever or when will it end. I'm, I'm, uh, do you see what I mean? You're building a solidity to it by, 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 by time concept. And this, this goes on without us even realizing it. So sometimes it can be really skillful to practice shifting into another mode where one's just kind of snipping off the past and the future and just seeing there's just this moment, there's just this moment. Experientially, existentially, that's all there can be. It's just this moment and in this moment all there can be is an impression in awareness. Experientially. So I'm not saying anything about there is a world, there isn't a world, but from a sort of meditator's contemplative pers perspective, all there is now is, is this impression in awareness, whatever sense it comes through. So I can get caught up in the idea of losing things, or my house, or my this, or my that. All my house can ever be is an impression in awareness, in the moment. All my anything can be is an impression in awareness, in the moment. And we get so caught up in a sense of solidifying things uh, in a way that experientially they're actually not. Now, of course, that view has its limits, but as a, as a skillful means in meditation, it's actually very skillful. And to, to somehow really practicing that, the whole sense of life can shift over time. And this whole sense of life being uh, not as substantial as we tend to take it. This is another kind of approach uh, to emptiness. It's, it's quite a popular approach, actually. Just seeing things as impressions in awareness in the moment. Uh, a slightly more sophisticated approach is seeing things as just perceptions. They're perceptions that are built, that are fabricated. So this practice that we've been doing this week, uh, with directing kindness towards things, is sometimes if things fade, one actually sees that through through the lack of kindness or the lack of acceptance, a perception is actually getting built, it's getting fabricated or compounded, to use the Buddha's words, constructed in the moment. Without that, uh, without m the mind doing something, that perception cannot be there. So 
something, whatever's going on, is just a perception, it's just fabricated. It's empty, in other words, it's empty. So through our practice and through our life, when we begin to stop elevating certain things and uh, putting down other things, whatever they are, inner experiences or outer things or other people or situations, whatever. when that movement uh, gets less, when there is less pushing away of what we don't like and trying to keep or pull towards us what we do like, when that push and pull gets quieter, it goes through a whole range of getting quieter, very, very subtle, uh, this is the movement into equanimity. And similar to the practice that we're doing now, there can be, as the push and the pull gets quieter, there can be a kind of fading of experience. There's things just get quieter, they make less of an impression in consciousness. They just begin to dissolve a little bit. Sometimes they can dissolve completely. There's virtually nothing left. Sometimes there's just a little dissolving. Sometimes it's almost like the world has just become a very soft, uh, gentle flickering of sensation in a very kind of quiet and spacious and relaxed way. That's all that remains in the world. There's just a little burst here, a little burst there of, some, of something that's almost nothing. That's a very deep level of equanimity. And then at that level we may think, well, hasn't it completely turned round? So we used to think, used to define equanimity as being a steadiness in relation to what's difficult or what's great or what's exciting or whatever and the heart just stays steady. As the equanimity really deepens, not much really arises anyway. There's nothing really happening. So I can't really be equanimous in relation to what's difficult because there's nothing there's nothing there to be equanimous in relation to. It's, it's gone it's taken a whole different level of meaning. If sometimes equanimity deepens to that kind of uh, level. There's a real beauty in that. So again, sometimes we hear this word equanimity, and it's a strange word, as I said. And it can sound kind of cold and dry and grey or whatever, but to people who, who do, you know, committed to practice and open to that kind of thing, there really is um, uh, a wonder in it and a beauty in it. Uh, there is a, 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 a juiciness in it, I don't know any other word, there's, it's, there's, it's not dry, it's absolutely not dry. And there's also love in it, there's absolutely love in it. So that, uh, because, or rather, in that state there's, there's a kind of non-separation. We are not building a sense of self and other, a sense of separation by getting involved in this tussle, in this push and pull. In the non-separation, there's love, uh, effortlessly, effortlessly. It's a very important thing here. Sometimes, you know, describing kinds of experiences or states is not to snatch at the experience. What's much more important is the understanding. So, uh, sometimes there's an experience, sometimes there isn't. The more important thing is the understanding, and the understanding there is that 
again, similar to the practice that we've been doing this this week, how a thing appears depends on my relationship to it. Whether it appears at all depends on my relationship to it. How a thing is then depends on the push and the pull and is inherently immeasurable. There is no real way it is. It's immeasurable. So this is more important than a certain kind of experience. Uh, we're actually beginning to see into, in a very deep level, the immeasurability of all things. All things. So-called inner, so-called outer. Their, their true nature is immeasurable. And that understanding begins to go deep in the being. And we really begin to understand that in a kind of unshakable way. And it's that understanding that brings the deepest equanimity. Because then whatever happens, we know that it's not real in its own right. It's actually immeasurable. And that being, brings a really deep equanimity. And also a really deep love, a really deep compassion. Because we see the universality of it all. That principle is something that applies to all consciousnesses, not even just human beings, all consciousnesses. Whenever there's a consciousness, the appearance of things to that consciousness depends on the push and the pull, the relationship with. And that's universal. That universality, seeing that, understanding that, brings equanimity, as I said, but brings very deep compassion because it's uh, got very deep wisdom with it. Should we just sit for a minute together? So I do have some practical announcements, but if uh, we can take a little time, uh, if you like, if there are any questions um, either coming out of, again, what was said now, or some other talk, or uh, all the practice right now, uh, we have a little time if there are any questions. Okay. Um, in terms of generating samadhi yeah. and equanimity, uh, is Samatha the best approach to that? Yeah, it's a good, important question, yeah. Uh, 
samatha in the sense of taking one object like the metta or the compassion or the breath or whatever it is and just going deep in that yeah eventually that will that will lead to a deepening through different stages and and there will be equanimity yeah so that's one way the other way is a more a kind of insight way and that would be what I touched on here is um, letting being conscious of grasping of pushing pulling aversion holding on craving etc in the moment and just relaxing that finding a way to let go of the craving the aversion mm -hmm. in the moment and then what happens is craving and aversion is actually an agitation of the being and so there's a relative degree of calmness then potentially uh, I mean you could call that a state a deepening of equanimity but in that calmness because of the calmness there's actually uh, the calmness allows a more subtle seeing, a more deeper seeing. So one actually can sometimes pick up on more subtle levels of craving, grasping, aversion, clinging, and feel that and let go of that. And so one way that the whole thing can deepen is just uh, just by going, getting more and more subtle with that. So and at a certain point, uh, it gets very subtle and will include things like just taking some some experience to be me or mine or whatever mm. and and we'll go through a whole range of subtlety with that mm. so that would be going at it via an insight way so in a more open spacious exactly technique. yes mm. yeah and uh, so in the open spacious technique there's a degree of resting but there's also some degree of doing but the doing is a kind of letting go one's just keep letting go and then feeling the feeling the actually the loveliness of the release mm. of the letting go and then feeling ah actually there's a bit more tiredness and letting go so it's not a great sort of you know, it's more. Um, it's it's quite spacious, and and one is just there's just enough doing in the letting go to keep the space um, alive and soft and deepening in equanimity. All all of those things, mm -hmm. and and some of the clinging gets extremely subtle, extremely extremely subtle as as you go as you go deep into it. If you get really skillful at all that, what you what you can do is, uh, especially if you have a background in sort of samatha practice, is once that open space is there, it's almost like you can filter out the equanimity and choose to focus in on that, and then have kind of much uh, more contained equanimity, which is more like a deep state of absorption. That takes quite some practice, but it's, it's possible. So one can actually move between these two. Between, between equanimity no, between a much more openness. between a more open kind of equanimity. Yeah. 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 Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good. Um, early on in the talk, you mentioned that the lack of equanimity is the sense of the mind sort of reaching out and grasping after things. Yeah. 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 If you're noticing that going on in yourself, mm -hmm. which of the two approaches? that you just described to mm. Martin, mm. Um, Both, if it's a kind of, uh, if it's relatively gross in the sense of sort of I'm trying to concentrate on this thing and I just keep, the mind keeps getting distracted by this and then that and then this and then that. And it's kind of like one feels like one can't keep the mind in, you know, with the meta practice or with the, that sort of level, I would just keep, keep doing the, the, the steadying of the mind with one object. If there's already a sense of steadiness, uh, then that's enough steadiness to kind of pick up on um, on on, the, on the, the, the sense of just how it feels to grasp after something or to push something away. And you can kind of feel it if there's a bit more spaciousness. You feel it in the subtle 
physical, uh, the subtle body sense. It's just a kind of contraction of the subtle body sense or a contraction of the sense of space. It contracts when we grasp or push away. And one notices that and then one just lets go. If there's a bit more steadiness of the awareness, that's a really good way too. They're both valid and in a way the answer is really to experiment. So sometimes even in the course of I'm just trying to stay with one object, and there's a lot of restlessness or something. Something sometimes the best way is just to be more open, feel the pull of that restlessness. So it's, you, you actually feel it as a, like that, and you just you just relax it. Yeah, it's, it is like that. And I'm also feeling like the suffering that's coming out of that. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's great. So, go on, read, or is that it? But and but I can't I can't judge as it is. You know, you said maybe there's a degree of spaciousness. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, I'm just feeling the push and pull yeah, and yeah. the suffering that's mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. I would just be fr- feel free to experiment with both ways. Feeling the suffering is important because, in a way, there's a lot of insight in this approach. What what we begin to realize is that uh, something's catching our attention in the environment. Maybe that's very simple, but a pain in the body it's unpleasant, there's a pushing away of it through aversion, and and there's suffering there, and actually note, feeling the suffering, feeling, and sometimes it's very subtle suffering they're talking about, sometimes it's less suff- subtle, but sometimes it can be just the sense of contraction is a sense of suffering. And one notices that when there's pushing or pulling or aversion, there's suffering there. As I relax that, the suffering goes. And, and being actually sensitive to the suffering and the release of suffering is, is really key in the deepening of equanimity. So there's, there's a real sensitivity to suffering and its release, and suffering and its release, and suffering and its release, as the process deepens. Uh, so it's, not, it's, it's actually good to be sensitive in that way. In the moment, which will be the right approach, it's hard to say. And it's more a question of which practice you're kind of... Um, <laughs> doing at the time. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> What's so funny? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's quite, it can be quite important to have, this is the practice I'm doing, this is what I'm doing 90% of the time, this is my sort of emergency backup uh, practice <laughs> that I take out in emergencies. And then, you know, when I'm trying to stay with the matter, or whatever, or it's really not happening today, or this, this sitting, I've been plugging away for, you know, 40 minutes, half an hour, whatever it is. Okay, now I, now I plug in the other practice. Other times, the more spacious practices is the main one. It's really not happening. I need to settle the mind with, with one object. But it's good to have, like, you know, one thing, this is what I'm doing, the other one's a backup. For, yeah. that, that will help, I think. Full day of practice. Um, 
don't know if that crawled by my or if it was <laughs> shot by. Anyway, tomorrow is the last day of practice for this retreat. Uh, so we've got a modified schedule and want to start thinking a little bit about uh, reintegrating. Uh, reintegrating. To some of you, and we're actually quite a number of you actually staying and, and just extending your retreats, but uh, so there's a, there's a couple of pieces. One piece is, is the integration, just moving from the very kind of protected environment of retreat to <laughs> out there. Um, and the other piece is actually something about we've been together in silence and as a community practicing together in silence and something about coming together in, in, in communication now, in, in actually sharing together uh, that I see as very important. Even please to consider if you're staying as well, it might be really uh, nice to have some kind of time of interacting. So, uh, tomorrow morning, uh, usual sitting and walking uh, and breakfast and all that, until 10.45, then from 10.45 to 11.45, um, the lounge will be reserved for, for everyone here uh, to just go and talk, just talk, uh, just spend some time with each other, uh, get to know each other, uh, talk about whatever. Um, <laughs> 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 this is being recorded, I'm going to tell <laughs> 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 uh, 